beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good. And he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning. The first day. And God said, Let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky. And there was evening and there was morning, the second day. And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, there was morning, the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth, across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea, and every living thing with which the water teems, and that moves about in it, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, and said, Be fruitful. And increase in number and fill the water in the seas. And let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening. And there was morning. The fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds. The livestock. The creatures that move along the ground. And the wild animals. Each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. 
So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, Wollongong Baptist Church. If you're new or visiting, welcome. Um, as Mark has already mentioned, uh, tonight we are kicking off a series in the book of Genesis, looking at chapters 1 to 12 called The Roots of Redemption. Uh, and also, as Mark mentioned, we are going to have Q&A after this sermon. Uh, but like Mark also said, it's going to be different. So if you've got questions, text them in. Uh, heads up, I don't know if half an hour after the sermon. I've only got a limited amount of time, so I'll select the questions. Um, but if I get lots of questions, what I'll actually do is I'll write them up and I'll answer them and I'll send everyone an email so that you get your question answered. So your question will be answered, so text it in. I just might not mention it tonight. Um, but anyway, obviously we're going to get into Genesis, but before we do, I'm going to pray. So if you're the praying type, please bow your heads with me. Father God, we just want to thank you for your word. We thank you for, by your word, you create creation. Uh, but then at the same time, you not only speak to us through creation, but you speak to us through your special revelation of the scriptures. Lord, we thank you for the privilege it is for us to look at it right now. And I pray, Lord, that you may move us to worship you, to be moved by you, and to see how you are a good God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, when I was little, I was that annoying little kid that asked a million and one questions to my parents. Uh, and eventually I got onto that question where I went, hey, dad, how was I created? And then I had that awkward talk. You know that awkward talk I'm talking about where your parents sit you down and they go, well, son, when two people really love one another, like your mom and dad, this and that happens and then this happens. You know that point in the conversation when you're just like, whoa, 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 stop it. I don't want to know about this. Like, like you just tormented for the rest of your life. Well, after I got the, had that tor- after I was tormented, sorry, I then started to ask a few more questions, and I started to think, but wait a minute, wait a minute, how, how are people older than me created? And then before they started talking about how grandma and grandpa loved one another, I was like, no, 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 stop that, stop that. How, like, how were all humans created? How was creation created? I don't know if you ever asked that question uh, for thousands of years, humanity has been asking that question, and for thousands of years, humanity has been trying to answer that question. 
Um, in the ancient Near East, the Babylonians used to explain how different gods created creation, while today science tries to explain to us how uh, the Big Bang Theory and evolution explains our origins. I think as humans, we long to understand our origins. I think as humans, we're intrigued by our beginnings, both on a big and a small scale. Which is why for thousands of years, humanity has tried to explain the origins of creation. But it's also why websites such as Ancestry.com exist. So why when we meet someone for the first time, we, one of the questions we ask is, where are you from? I think for most of us, our origins, our beginnings, or if I can put it another way, our genesis intrigues us. And for this reason tonight, we're going to be looking at the Bible's creation story from Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, because we're intrigued by it. But there's another reason why we're looking at Genesis tonight, and that is because the good Genesis explains the roots of redemption. What do I mean by that? Well, if you're unaware, the Bible is a book that is about the greatest story the world has ever known, the story of redemption. The Bible is a book about a God who redeems his creation that has rebelled against him. And so by looking at Genesis, we're going to be introduced to the main character of this story of redemption. We're also going to be introduced to the setting of this story. And also, if you want to put it, the sidekick or I guess the supporting actors of this story as well. Tonight, we're going to be looking at the main actor who is God. Then we're going to be looking at the setting of creation. And then we're going to be looking at the supporting act of humanity. Let me repeat that because it's, I guess, the structure of the talk. We're going to look at God, we're going to look at creation, and then we're going to look at humanity. But before we dig into Genesis 1 and open it up and see what it says about God, creation, and humanity, I think it's important that I give some context to the book of Genesis and Genesis chapter 1. And heads up, this will take a bit more time than what it normally does when we look at a part of the Bible. But give me a break, it's Genesis chapter 1. So, to begin with, most people believe, including Jesus... Uh, so I think that's a good, good enough excuse for me, that Moses wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and wrote the book of Genesis. Uh, most people believe that it was written by Moses around three and a half thousand years ago to the Israelites of the time. Ignoring Genesis chapter 1, the book of Genesis covers about 2,000 years of human history. And chapters 3 to 5, by itself, covers around about 1,500 years of human history. Now, the reason why I point this out is because it's important for us to understand that when Moses wrote the book of Genesis, he didn't write a detailed historical account. Instead, he wrote a selective historical account. And it's important for us to pick up on that. Because when we realize that Genesis is a selective historical account, then it makes us ask, okay, well, what's the purpose of this selective account? You see, I think it's important that we need to understand what is the author's original intentions when he wrote Genesis to his original audience, before we think, what is its purpose for us today? You see, I think if we approach Genesis without asking that question of what was its original purpose, then it'd be like you and I maybe trying to read Shakespeare for a train timetable or trying to read Harry Potter for a dinner recipe. So when it comes to Genesis 1, a three and a half thousand year old text, we need to consider what is the author's original purpose in this text? And I think the first step to trying to figure that out and trying to think what is this purpose is to think about what is the genre of Genesis 1? What's its, in other words, its literature type? Like what sort of literature is it? Because if Genesis is a historical narrative, then it's trying to inform us of facts, scientific facts. But if Genesis 1 is 
more poetic than that, then its purpose is not so much to inform us as it is to move us. So, what is the genre of Genesis 1? Well, for most of the Bible, trying to figure out what the genre is of a text is quite easy. You know, you read the Gospels. You can, it's quite easily to tell that it's a historical narrative with the details it has and the format it's in. When you read the Psalms, it's pretty obvious that it's poetry because of the parallelism and repetition and um, style of which it's written. But in many ways, Genesis 1 is harder to define. It's unique. In many ways, it's, it's a narrative. It has the components of a story. It has an introduction. It has a setting. It has characters. It has a complication. It has tension that is built, and it has a climax. In many ways, it's like a story in the sense of how it's written, and that it, most of the sentences begin with and, and that's what the way it's written in the Hebrew as well. And yet at the same time, even though it looks like a narrative, it looks completely different to the historical narratives of Genesis 2 to Genesis 50. How so? Well, firstly, because it's quite poetic. If you see the repetition, and you also see the, on top of that, the patterns and how it's lyrical, it's, it's, it's like, for example, you can see the repetition, how ten times we, see, we read, and God said, and eight times we read, let there be, and seven times we read, and God saw that it was good. It's, it's quite structured in a way that is unusual to what we see in a narrative. But on top of that, secondly, the historical narratives of Genesis 2 to 50, they all have this really unique line, which says this. It says, this is the account of... And there's 10 of those lines throughout the book of Genesis, and it basically structures the book of Genesis, but Genesis chapter 1 doesn't have one. The first one is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, where it says, this is the account of the heavens and the earth. And so with all this in mind, it begs the question, what is the genre of Genesis 1? Well, if I'm honest, we don't really know for sure. We know that it's quite a unique piece of literature, and we know that it has both components of a story and of poetry. However, saying that, personally, if I was to define it, I probably wouldn't call it historical narrative. Maybe I'd call it poetic narrative. Because I think the goal of Genesis 1 is not so much to give us scientific facts, but instead it's supposed to inform us of the creator and of humanity that he's created. That it's meant to move us to understand how good this God is. Personally, I think if God was to write a scientific account of creation, that Genesis 1 would have more pages than that is in a library. I think as well, though, if God was to communicate to us a detailed scientific account, that the original readers of Genesis would have no idea as to what was being said and wouldn't understand it. And I think the reality is probably you and I wouldn't as well. Now, maybe you're thinking, Joel, we're in the 21st century. Like, we're in the generation of science. What do you mean we won't be able to understand it? Well, let me tell you a quick story. My son Elijah is four years old. And can I tell you how difficult it is to explain to him the concept of time? Like, when I'm like, no, we're not going to park now. We're going in like 10 minutes. He's like, breaks down in front of me in tears. Like, just doesn't quite get it. I think sometimes we've got to be careful to think that, yeah, we are as smart to understand how God created the universe if he was to convey that to us. Saying all that, as we come to Genesis 1, I guess what I want to communicate is that we have lots of questions you know, we have questions such as, is this literal days? Is, is, did God create everything in seven days? You know, we want to think, is the earth young or old? We want to think, how does evolution fit into this, into this story? And we want to think, where are the dinosaurs? Like, for goodness sake, where are the dinosaurs? 
But if you have those questions, please feel free to text them in and we'll look at them after this sermon. But for now, I want us to look at Genesis 1 and I want the text just to speak for itself. So I want you to try and put those questions out of your mind. So let's look at Genesis 1 and let's look at verses 1 to 5. It'll be up on the screen. Let me read this out to us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. In Genesis 1 to chapter 2, verse 3, we basically see how God creates everything. We see how he creates the sky, the sea, the land, the plants, the lights, the sun, the moon, the stars, the fish, and all of humanity, or humans, sorry. And within six days, we see that God creates, and then on the seventh day, how he rests. And if you look at this account, I don't know what you pick up on, but the first thing I notice is how God dominates this account. Like the first sentence of the Bible is, in the beginning, God. God is the subject of the first sentence of the Bible. He dominates this account, and it continues on. For the next 32 um, verses, the God, or the, the, word, sorry, the, the word Elohim in the Hebrew is repeated 35 times. You can't not read this and see that God is involved in creation. Have you ever met someone um, who's really important and been awestruck by them? maybe a celebrity, a politician, a sporting star. A few years ago at a conference, at a Christian conference, I had the opportunity to meet one of my favorite Christian authors. Uh, he's a guy called Don Carson. Uh, he's an oppressive man. He's written about 50 books. And if I'm honest, I'm a big fanboy of him. One afternoon after Don had done a talk at this conference, I wanted to go say hello to him. And so I walked up to him and I got awestruck. I got nervous. I got speechless. And the only thing that I was able to utter out of my mouth was, thanks. And then I just walked away <laughs> and just thought of how creepy I was. And it was ridiculous. And I remember I got to the seat and it was like, what did you chat about? I'm like, oh, you know, deep stuff, you know, like lots of things. When we come to the first page of the Bible, I think sometimes we can forget a simple fact. We are getting introduced to God. We're getting introduced to the most important being on the universe. As we read the ink on these pages, we are meant to be awestruck at the awesomeness of God. As we see him marveling at his creation, saying, how good is it? We're meant to be marveling at God and saying, how good is he? Genesis 1 introduces us to God and it should put us in awe. No other chapter in the Bible is as critical or as comprehensive as explaining who God is. If you want to know who God is, who your creator is, read Genesis 1. You see, this chapter, it reveals so much about who God is. I wish I had the time to unpack everything that explains about him. But as I've been thinking and reflecting and praying for the last week, I think the main thing that this Genesis account is trying to teach us is that this creator is good that this creator is good. Now, where, where do I get that from? Well, let me give you five reasons from the text as to why God is a good God. Firstly, God is a good God who uses his power for good. 
God is so powerful that when he speaks, matter is made. God uses his power to create not an evil creation, but a good one. In a few weeks, we'll learn about how this good creation is broken by sin. But in the beginning, God creates this good creation because he's a good God. Secondly, though, God is a good God who brings order out of chaos. In verse 2, we're basically given a description of what is the setting behind God's work in verses 3 to uh, 31. And in verse 2, it doesn't say that there was nothing. It says there was something. It says that there was formlessness, emptiness, darkness, and waters. Or in other words, there was chaos. In Genesis 1, God is a good God who brings order. He brings structure. He brings symmetry. In days 1, 2, and 3, if you pick up on this, God creates different spaces. He creates light and darkness. He creates the heavens and the waters. He creates land and separates them from the waters. And then in days 4, 5, and 6, he fills these spaces with animals, birds, fish, and humans. As this God changes this chaotic environment into an habitable environment. God is a good God who brings order out of chaos. Thirdly, God is a good God who brings life. God could have created atoms, molecules, materials, and just light. But instead, he also creates creatures, organisms, and humans. And more than that, God, get this, God allows for life to duplicate through the means of sex. When God says to the humans in verse 28, be fruitful and increase in number, he's saying, go have babies, go have sex, and enjoy one another. Now, so I'm clear in the next chapter, we learn that's in the context of marriage. But what we see here is that God is the creator of sex. That he not only creates life, but he helps his own creation make its own life. Thirdly, God is a good God who gives life. Fourthly, God is a good God who provides food. In verse 29, after blessing the humans, he tells them that the plants and the trees are there for their food and for the other animals. You know, the fact that God provides seeds, plants and trees as a means to feed them is incredible because that food grows and reproduces as well. God is a good God. The only thing I'm bummed about is he didn't create a Mars bar tree. But other than that, it's pretty good. God provides food. Fifthly and finally, God is a good God who is personal. Can you see that? According to Genesis 1, God is not a deistic God who created creation and walked away. He isn't this God that created this marvelous watch and just let it work and didn't touch it again. In verse 26, he says, Let us make mankind in our image, hinting at how God has, been, has eternally existed as the Trinity in Father, Son, and Spirit as three persons, but one God. By creating humans in his image, he's being personal and intimate with his creation. But more than that, can you see how he names creation, how he rejoices in creation, how he blesses creation, how he even delegates the rule of it to his humans, and then he even models rest to his creation. Fifthly and finally, God is a good God who is personal. At home, uh, my boys and I like to dance when we listen to music. I've got an um, 18-month-year-old and a 4-year-old. Uh, and when we dance, basically Isaac can't dance, so he just like, does these ones, just bobs up and down and maybe spins around. Uh, but Eli and I, we have a few dance moves. We're pretty, we're pretty good at it. And um, one of the moves that we like to do is Eli will yell out, do the aeroplane, and so he'll be like, doing the aeroplane. And he'll be like, do the trolley, and so he'll be like, all right, doing the trolley, doing the trolley. Um, I don't know about you, but when I listen to music, I can't help but dance. But also, what I can't help but do is just to think, man, 
how good is this artist? Or how good is this band? Whenever we read Genesis 1, we're meant to have a similar reaction. Maybe we're not meant to dance to it, but we're meant to go, how good is this artist? How good is this creator? In Genesis 1, we are first introduced to the creator of creation. We are introduced to the main, st- the main character of the story of redemption, the creator. But after we get introduced to the creator, and Genesis 1 moves on and introduces us to the creation, I guess the, the setting to the story of redemption. And as we look and as we observe this creation, I think the author is trying to communicate two important truths about this creation. Firstly, that this creation is good. And secondly, that this creation is not God. First truth, creation is good. In chapter one, after making the lights, the sky, the land, the seas, the fish, the birds, the animals and humans, God declares that they were good. In verse 26, after God had seen everything he had made, he said it is very good. Personally, I can relate to this. I don't know about you, but whenever I mow the lawn, I can relate to this. So um, at our place, we have this tiny strip of grass. It's probably like 10 meters by like one meter. Uh, It's full of weeds. Uh, It's beautiful, really. Um, And it's, yeah, uneven. It's terrible. But anyway, because of how small our lawn is and because of how manly I am, um, I decided to buy a mower that is powered by my muscles and not by machine. Um, if you want me to translate that, I was cheap and I bought a manual mower instead of a powered one, a petrol-powered one. Anyway, after I spend forever mowing my lawn, um, I always like to sit back with refreshment in hand and just look at it and go, damn, that's good. That's good. Yep. I did that. Now, maybe you're wondering, like, Joel, like, like, why are you telling me this? But also, like, why does the author want to tell us and convey to us that creation is good? Like, why is he trying to do that? Well, because if I'm honest, the human heart has a tendency to demonize creation rather than enjoy it. When you look at human history, dualistic Greek philosophers, such as Aristotle and Plato, some big dudes, demonize creation by arguing that the physical world was evil and that only the spiritual was good. If you don't know what I mean by dualism, the word dual just means two. And so dualism is thinking about the world in two different ways, in the spiritual realm and the physical realm. When reflecting on Genesis 1 and how a good God created creation, a guy called William Temple, who's an archbishop in England, said something that was really insightful that I came across this week. Let me read it out to you. He said this. He said, Eastern religions say this world is unreal, that it's an illusion. Western religions, the Greeks, say the world and the body is evil, but the spirit is virtuous and good. Islam says paradise is a spiritual world. We must leave the material world. Only the Bible has such a high view and positive view of the goodness of creation that we are told God will resurrect our bodies and make a new heavens and new earth. Only the Bible envisions spirit and matter existing in integrity forever. Dualism says that creation is evil. While the God of the Bible says creation is good, dualism says that creation is evil and should not be enjoyed. The God of the Bible says that it's good and that it should be enjoyed. Friends, can you see how Genesis 1 invites us to enjoy creation, to play in it, to be amazed by it and by its creator? For Genesis 1, I think it's trying to convey to us this truth that creation is good. So that's the first truth. Second one is this, that the author is trying to convey to us, I think, is that creation is not God. Creation is not God. In Genesis 1, 
what do we see? We see that God is the only uncaused cause. We see that he is the creator, that he is the only eternal being, the only transcendent being. He is the only God. That God creates everything, the sun, the moon, the stars, humans, animals, everything. Now, maybe you're thinking, Joel, why is this important? Why is this author trying to convey to us that creation is not God? Well, because the human heart has a tendency not only to demonize creation, but to divinize creation. Or in other words, to worship creation. When Genesis was written, uh, the ancient Near Eastern religions thought that the sun and the moon and the stars and the skies and the seas and even some humans were gods. While today, some pantheist, pantheistic religions believe that creation is divine. But in Genesis 1, God says, I'm not part of creation, I'm separate from it. He says, these so-called gods that you worship, I created them. They're not immortal, they're not eternal, they're not majestic, they're not worthy of worship. I am. In 1977, NASA uh, launched the unmanned spacecraft called the Voyager 1. Thirteen years later, in 1990, when the Voyager was six billion kilometers away from Earth, it took a photo of Earth. This famous photo is called the pale blue dot, because on that photo, Earth is just a pale blue dot. I wanted to show the photo, but unfortunately it doesn't show on the screens. I'll post it on Facebook. But basically what happened is uh, when people were looking at this dot, one man, an astronomer called Carl Sagan, said this. And I reckon it's really insightful. He said, look again at that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. Honored everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you have ever heard of, every human being who ever was, lived out their lives. He goes on to say, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. In 1990, this pale blue dot, this photo which just basically had all darkness and this little tiny speck humbled the world. In Genesis 1, God humbles everyone who thinks that creation is divine. Like, look again at Genesis verse 16, 116, where basically it talks about the two lights, the greater light and the lesser light. Now, that's clearly the sun and the moon, but Genesis doesn't even mention their names. It's almost like it's saying to the culture of the day, hey, your so-called gods, they're little. They're not even worth naming. In this creation account, we get introduced to creation. And what the author wants us to understand about this creation is that it's good but it's not God. We shouldn't demonize it. We shouldn't worship it. We should enjoy it for what it is. Creation made by our creator. So, firstly, Genesis 1, we get introduced to God, the creator, who is good and God. And then secondly, we get introduced to creation, which is good, but not God. Let's now look at how Genesis 1 introduces us to humanity. Specifically, we get introduced to humanity in verses 26 to 28. And what we, get, what we see here is that humanity is the climax of God's creation. But before we look at those verses and unpack them, I firstly want to highlight something. And what I want to highlight is this, is that your view or your understanding of human creation shapes your understanding of human worth. Your view of human creation shapes your understanding of human worth or value, if you want to put it that way. 
And you see, in our world today, there's basically, there's many different worldviews, but the two predominant ones, especially in our culture, is that humans were either created by chance or humans were created by a creator. In a second, we're going to go through Genesis 1 and talk about how uh, what it looks like for humans to be created by a creator. But I thought what would be helpful is for us to look at, I guess, this other worldview of how humans are created by chance. I don't know unless you want to explain the whole thinking behind it, but basically what I want to do is I want to read out to you some atheists who believe in this, who don't believe that there is a God and believes that everything is by chance, in particular humanity. And I want you to think what is their opinion of human value or worth. So let's go through a few um, people who think this. Uh, the American psychologist uh, called B, or known as B.F. Skinner argued in his book Beyond Freedom and Dignity that because humans are entirely, sorry, entirely shaped by forces outside their will, as a result they have no will, no freedom, and thus no dignity. The English political philosopher John Gray said in his book Straw Dog that because humans are made of chemicals, no different than plants and animals, that human life has no more meaning than the life of slime mold. In other words, if you don't understand what I mean by that, that you and I are just as meaningful as the mold at the bottom of our showers. Now, the final one I want to read out to you, this next quote, if I'm honest, if it's quite shocking and, and it can potentially be upsetting, um, it's by the Australian moral philosopher Peter Singer, and he said in his book Practical Ethics, when talking about the pro-life movement, and this quote will come up on the screen, he says that, those who protest against abortion but dying regularly on the bodies of chickens, pigs and calves can hardly claim to have concern for life as such. Their concern about embryos and fetuses suggests only a biased concern for lives of members of their own species. On any fair comparison of morally relevant characteristics like rationality, self-consciousness, awareness, autonomy, pleasure and pain and so on, the calf the pig, and the much-derided chicken come out well ahead of the fetus at any stage of the pregnancy. Singer goes on, it doesn't come on the screen this, but he goes on to say this, he says, my suggestion then is then we, when we accord the fetus, no, sorry, my suggestion then is that we accord the fetus no higher moral status than we give to a non-human animal at a similar level of rationality, self-consciousness, awareness, capacity to feel, and so on. In his book, even more than shockingly to this, he continues on to say that actually there's no real difference in the value of life between the fetus in the womb and a one-month-old baby. And therefore, morally, he suggests, to kill a month-year-old is just as wrong as killing a fetus, but it's actually less wrong than killing a chicken or pig or calf. As you can see from these worldviews, it doesn't necessarily have a high value of human life. Let's now look at what the Bible says about human life and it says about humans and how they're created in Genesis 1. And we're going to look at verses 26 to 27. And we're going to learn how when humans are created by a creator, how their life has incredible value. So read with me verses 26 to 27. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that, we, so, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creation that moves along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. And male and female, he created them. I mentioned this before, but let me explain how I think this. In Genesis 1, humanity is the climax of God's creation. You see, humanity is the last thing that God creates, but also he's the only thing that's created in God's image. 
and is the only creature that's been given a task. According to Genesis, because humanity is a product of a creator, humanity has value and worth, meaning and purpose. See, according to Genesis, humans are more valuable than slime mold, pigs, chickens. Now maybe you're thinking, what does it mean for humans to be created in the image of God? Well, to be made in the image of God is quite complicated and it means a lot of things. But what, the way, what Genesis explains to us is that to be made in the image of God is to be God's representative on earth. In other words, it's to be his little kings and queens who rule on his behalf and bless creation like he's blessed them. How do, where do I get that from? Well, in verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule. The fact that humans are made in the image of God means that every human has dignity and worth. And therefore, there's no foundation for racism or sexism because every human is made in the image of God. Like, just think about it for a second. If life is about survival of the fittest, then in many ways, racism and sexism is justified. But if humans are created to represent a good God, then the evil of racism and sexism is not justified. Last year, I, um, I bought a computer game called Crusader Kings. Uh, I feel like if you're here at Rally on Chisholm Night, you're learning about my nerdy habits. But anyway, um, this game is called a strategy game. What does that mean? Well, basically, you try and win the game by making strategic decisions. And in this game, you play as a king or a noble, and you have to rule over your land or your kingdom. And the way you do that is by trying to keep your tenants or your vassals happy. To be honest, I am terrible at this game. And my own tenants have this habit of they keep on rebelling against me. It's quite annoying. Instead of ruling over my land, they rebel through my land. Now, why am I telling you this story? Well, because only two chapters later in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 3, which we'll look at in a few weeks, we learn that the humans who were meant to rule over God's creation rebelled through creation. Instead of ruling over the serpent, Adam and Eve listened to the serpent Instead of resisting the temptation to take the fruit from the forbidden tree, they reached out for it. Adam and Eve, the first humans, rebelled against their creator. Instead of marveling and worshipping their creator, they chose to marvel and worship creation. And since that day, creation has been fractured. Death has entered the story. Suffering has come. Our own personal relationship with God has been broken. Since that day, humans have used their power for evil. Chaos has returned. Suffering has permeated our lives. And no one has been able to perfectly rule and perfectly be the image of God. Until Jesus. Until Jesus. In the New Testament, in Colossians 1, 15 to 20, it'll be up on the screen, we get introduced to the Son of God. It says this. Let me read it to you. I love this passage. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. 
I love this passage because what do we learn? We learn that Jesus is also the creator. But more than that, we learn that he was the perfect image of God that was able to do that we were unable, we were unable to do. On top of that, though, what we see in this passage is that at the cross, Jesus took the punishment we deserved for our rebellion. That at the cross, Jesus brought peace through his blood. So if, if humanity is the climax of creation, what we see here is that Jesus is the climax of history. That he is the climax of the story of redemption. Friends, Genesis 1 is about a good God who creates creation and creates you and I to marvel in it. When we look at Genesis 1, it's important that we understand that the way the world is today is not the, world, the way it was meant to be. As people who live in a broken world, it's important to remember that God is still good. When we experience the suffering of death, depression, divorce, or anything else, we need to remember that God is good. A good God who uses his power for good, brings order out of chaos, gives life, and is personal. And we know this through creation, but we also know this through Jesus. The creator who incarnated himself and then died on the cross so that he could redeem those who rebelled against him. So that one day he can renew and restore his broken creation and bring in the new heavens and earth where God's people will marvel in his goodness for eternity. The question is, are you one of his redeemed? Do you have faith in the Son? Do you worship God and know that he is good? The reason why we've called this series The Roots of Redemption is because the Bible is a grand story of redemption. Genesis is the beginning and Jesus is the climax. It's a story of how that humans can be redeemed through faith in their Savior. In Genesis 1, we're introduced to God, creation and humanity we're introduced to God who is both good and God and we're introduced to creation that is good but not God and we get introduced to humanity and uh, the ultimate man who is also fully man and fully God is Jesus Christ who demonstrates to us even more clearly than creation that God is good that God is good will you marvel at him will you marvel at him let me pray to close Heavenly Father, we are thankful for who you are. We are thankful that you are our creator. And as a result, we have meaning and purpose and value. And we thank you that that's demonstrated in creation, but also at the cross, where the most valuable human of all time laid down his life for us. Lord, we are thankful that despite the fact that this world is broken, you will redeem it, that you will renew it through your son. Lord, we long for that day. And Lord, I pray that you help us to remember that you are good despite the suffering and the pain that we will go through until that day comes. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.